out. Well, if you have your Bibles, we will be in Exodus 14 in just a minute. Uh, I'd like to open with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into it. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the direction that it gives us. Help us, Lord, um, to see ourselves in Israel, and but maybe more importantly, to remember that you are the same God who is God of Israel. 3,000 years ago, you're the same God that is involved in our lives right now. Help us, Lord, to walk faithfully through whatever you bring us. We pray these things in your name. All right. We good? King of the transients. I'm going to come back to that word in just a minute, because transient kind of has a certain feel to it, I think. Uh, Probably, well, this isn't clicking. Could be me. If not, I'll just, like, wave it, yeah. And then play came on. There we go. All right. About a year ago, I was getting ready for school in August around this exact time, and I went to Stanfordville and got a haircut. And the guy in Stanfordville is from Columbia. And he he's, like, very much lived here for, like, 20 years, but still had a very thick accent, Colombian accent. So I'm sitting there talking with him, and I had to concentrate so much to understand what he was saying. And I'm sure that he had to concentrate a lot on what I was trying to say, too. So it's like I, I had this haircut, had this conversation with him, and it was just one of those reality checks that in America, we have people from all over the world coming to us. But as soon as I left that place, I got my haircut, I, I remember leaving being like, wow, that was like an interesting conversation and hard to understand. And then I went to the town hall to vote. I don't remember what the vote was, but there was some kind of vote going on last year. And I saw five people that I knew, and it was just like instantaneously there's just a difference when you're talking with someone who is of your same culture, same background, and then it was just like an easy conversation. I didn't even think about the words that they were saying on one sense because <laughs> I didn't have to concentrate on what they were telling me. However, I can remember my conversation with the Colombian guy way more than the, the five conversations I had at the town hall because there's this connection. The more you have to concentrate on something, the long-term memory, the longer the memory sticks with you. So there's these times when we are the cultural insiders. When we understand the culture around us, we speak the language and all the things that go with it. But there was another time a couple years back where I was the cultural outsider. We went on a mission trip um, to Costa Rica, and it was one of those kind of immersive experiences uh, where they literally broke up our group into groups of two and placed us in all these different homes in this little mountain village in Costa Rica. And so we have a bunch of American kids who had one whole year of Spanish going with a bunch of Costa Rican families that some of them had zero years of English. And so there was very, very strained communication. Everything had to kind of be like smiles and grins and pointing because like communication was just so difficult. And so every night we would go into these homes and every morning we would come back together and eat breakfast. And in, in a very real sense, when everyone came back together, when we were the cultural outsiders coming together, that time was just so refreshing because then you could actually say, can you please pass the salt? And everybody knew what you meant. And you could have a conversation with people who spoke the same language as you. And in one sense, that is where the church is supposed to be. In many ways, we are to be the cultural outsiders, not the cultural insiders. And one of the reasons why coming together on a Sunday morning, coming together in Bible study is so key because it's a time to come together where we have the same background. And that's the beauty of going cross-cultural on mission trips, is you can go to any church in the world and you will have a similar foundation even if you don't speak the same language. So in many ways, we are spiritually closer 
to our foreign Colombian brothers and sisters or, you know, Western African Christians than we are with some of our own neighbors because of the foundation of where we begin. But this all kind of takes us back to this place of the idea of us being travelers, sojourners, or to use our word, transient. Um, because when we think about a transient person, it has a negative connotation, right? If I use the word sojourner or traveler or wanderer, that kind of has like a little bit more positive element. But when I say transient, that kind of brings like a homeless person into our community as transient or a migrant worker as transient. They're here for a season and then they're gone. And in a very real sense, we are to think of ourselves in that way, here for a season and then gone. The question is, what are we doing with that? And we come from, Christians, come from a long line of transient people. So what I'd like to do is my, my uh, Bible teacher way is to ask a question that's not rhetorical and then hear back from you. So who are some people in the Bible who are transient, who are wanderers, who didn't have a place to lay their head and call their own? Israel, which is the story we're going to take a look at today, the beginning of their transient wanderings. Yeah, they're going to be transient for 40 years. Jesus is a transient person, right? He says uh, he has no place to lay his head. So the very master we serve owned zero property, which is just remarkable for all of us who kind of wish we owned our own place, or for those of you who do. Uh, other examples of people who wandered, traveled. Abraham, father of faith, right? Transient person. He didn't just move from Ur to the promised land, he moved around while in the promised land. He didn't even stay in one place. And his claim to fame is he had a burial site. That's the only property he owned when he died is where to place himself and Sarah. Any other examples of transient people we can think of? Yeah. <laughs> There's a little different because they were kind of kicked out of their place. But yes, <laughs> transient Adam and Eve. Yep. Most of the apostles seemingly traveled a lot. Um, Peter probably had a home, but Paul definitely seemingly did not have a place to stay except when he was in these different cities, right? So we think about this reality. We are all transient. Nothing that we would cling to or hold on to is permanent. Everything is fading. And so in Hebrews 11, we're actually encouraged to think of ourselves as going towards a heavenly city that we've never been to, but is our actual home. And we're moving from this location to that location. And life is that journey between point A to point B. And as we think about that, what I want to do now is to take a look at the story that all of us are very familiar with, the story of passing through the Red Sea and Israel. And this is where we're going to take a look now and see that the reality sets in that there is a troubling, there's troubles when you transition. When you're in a transient place, it is not easy. There is difficulties that go with this. And for many of us, we're pretty happy to stay settled where we were rather than allowing God to move us where he wants us to be. So I'm going to read... Um, as, we go through the t as we go through the sermon, I'm going to go through the text in line. So I'm going to start with verse 5 of chapter 14. So this is after they've been freed um, and they are marching out. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, What have we done? We've let the Israelites go and have lost, and my translation says, has lost their services. That's like, that's like isn't that the most like politically correct thing they could have said? Like, they're slaves. We've lost their services as if they were being paid. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. He took 600 of his best chariots along with all the other chariots of Egypt with officers all over them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, so that he pursued the Israelites who were marching out boldly. The Egyptians, all of Pharaoh's horses, chariots, horsemen, and troops pursued the Israelites and overtook them as they camped by the sea near Pi-Pahirathoth. Perhaps that's how you say it. Opposite, Baal Zephon. 
As Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up, and there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. And they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out to the desert to die? What, you, what have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you while in Egypt, Leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. We're going to pause there for a second. This text is filled with forgetting. People forgetting. The first group of people that forget is Egypt. Now think about what they forgot. What had just happened over the last couple months? The ten plagues, right? Ranging from just a simple thing like turning the Nile to blood to the more extreme conclusion with the blotting out of the sun and the death of the firstborn. This all impacted Egypt across the board. And as soon as the, the Israelites leave and they look out over their land and realize that their slave labor is gone and they don't know how to function without a slave people, they, they forget. Like, isn't it interesting? They almost instantaneously forget what had just happened. And they're like, we need to go get them. We forgot about all the terrible things that just happened, the 10 plagues, but we need them back. And so they get in their chariots, they get on their horses, and they decide to pursue. And Egypt forgets the 10 plagues. Now we move on to Israel. What did Israel forget? God's faithfulness and the 10 plagues, right? They, they were on the watching side of the 10 plagues. So the same storyline is true for Egypt as it is for Israel. Both groups of people for several months watched God work powerfully to free Israel. And they are marching out of the promised land. And as soon as they have opposition, soon as Pharaoh's army starts to approach, what do they do? Forget what God has done and they turn and begin to attack Moses out of fear, which is again, a very human notion. And so Israel forgets, and they, they call out to Moses, and here's what they say, right? Was there not enough graves in Egypt, right? From their perspective, they're, they're jumping out of the frying pan and into the fire. They're like, didn't we tell you while we were in Egypt how great it was there? We didn't even want to leave. Now, pause for a moment. Is that the story? So what's going on? They're remembering... And later on in the book of Exodus, they're, they're going to remember like there was, there was onions and, and garlic to go with our food. We're sick of this terrible manna. So they remember the highlight points of slave life. But what were the other points of slave life? Throwing their, their sons into the Nile River. Working these people to the point of death and exhaustion. Controlling their every move. But what do they remember? The good. And what do they forget? The bad the myriad of bad things that controlled them. And they're like, we could have just stayed in Egypt. In fact, they go so far as to say, we wanted to stay in Egypt. You kind of like forced us out of Egypt. We didn't even want to go. And so for a brief moment, what Egypt wants and what Israel wants is the same thing. Egypt wants Israel back. Israel wants to go back. But thank goodness, there's a third desire here. There's the desire of the Lord, right? And his desire is to show his power through the destruction of Egypt and to raise Israel back up and to bring them out of slavery and make them his own people by adoption, similar to the song we just sang out of Romans 8. So God's desire is different than the enemy and even different than his own people. And this is good news for us because this means when we're sitting here wishing we could go back to the old days, that there's a God in heaven who has a bigger desire for us than even we have for ourselves. 
because there's this unique thing that can sometimes happen. Right? So I'm a church rat. I grew up in the church. So my perspective is different than those of you who got saved maybe later in life. But sometimes if we're not careful, we assume that coming to Christ means we leave all the hardships of life and we have an easier go of it. And on one level, there's some truth to that, right? I mean, we, we let go of a master who wants to destroy us and take a master who wants to love us. But how many of you have found that when you make commitments to do something for the Lord, difficulty instantly increases in a different area of life, right? This just, it's just the way things sometimes go. And so Israel, I think, had this perspective, we're leaving slavery and it's going to be easy street from here on in. And you read the rest of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and what do we find out? You can take the slave out of slavery, but you might not be able to take the slavery out of the slave. You can take the person out of addiction, but you can't necessarily take the addiction out of the person. That's a battle of life. That takes time and energy and desire. And right here, and in many ways, these people never actually leave Egypt, do they? I mean, they physically do. But the story of Numbers and Exodus is going to tell us they never actually leave. There's always this hang-up of trusting the Lord fully and complaining against him and wanting to go back to their old ways. And this entire generation is going to have to pass away before that desire dies in the country. So these people, they make this very kind of ironic statement. They're like, wasn't there enough graves back in Egypt? Now, quite possibly, what had Israel been doing in Egypt? Building the, the bricks for the pyramids, which are gigantic tombs. Like, isn't that kind of strange? Like, one of the ancient wonders of the world is basically a giant tomb to some pharaoh. You know, that's what it really boiled down to. And in Israel, quite possibly, would have spent their lives building tombs, building graves. And they're like, wasn't there enough of these pyramids back in Egypt? Now you're going to bring us out to the desert to die? What are you doing to us, Moses? So they cry out to God, but where do they focus their wrath? Moses, because he's there. He's in person, he's present, and they can attack him. And so this is the struggle. They want to go back because the desire for safety and security is stronger than their desire for freedom. And that's the battle that they're going to have to face at this exact point. So they're upset. They're crying out. And they're yelling at Moses. And then here's where we see Moses start to intervene. So if you look at now what Moses says. Now keeping in mind, they are up against a Red Sea. There is a gigantic army that has pinned them in. And Moses knows the exact same statistical facts as the nation of Israel does. But I want you to notice what he says. All right, he doesn't have supernatural insight as to what's about to happen. God has not opened the door for him to know what's next. But here's what Moses says, starting in verse 12. Or sorry, verse 13. Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. <laughs> in one sense, like, there's no other time in life that you should be more afraid. You know, like the army that wants to literally destroy you to the person is coming at you. You have no army. You have no tools to fight them. You know, you're going to lose. But Moses' first words, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance the Lord will bring you today. The Egyptians you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. Now, what's the difference between Moses and Israel? Faith. Moses has seen God work. Israel has seen God work. The difference is Moses is convinced that God hasn't stopped working. He's going to continue to save them, just like he started the process. He's going to be faithful to carry it through. 
he doesn't know the Red Sea is going to part. God's going to tell him in just a minute what he's supposed to do. But he's like, guys, we just need to stand still and watch the Lord work. That's what we've been doing this entire time. They didn't do anything to make the plagues happen. They just watched. That's all they did. They stood still and watched. The difference is there they had no choice. They're a slave nation trapped by an army. They can't leave. Here, the choice to go back is there. And suddenly, everything that they've been experiencing, all that they've seen is in a different light, and they're scared. But Moses says, be still. Now, one of the things I love about this um, is Moses, Moses is, willing to, is willing to take the heat. Right? He, again, he does not know what God is going to do next, but he's going to stand there and take the heat. But there's going to be times when we are just like Israel. Right? Times when life takes turns we didn't expect, tragedies happen that we didn't anticipate, Sometimes it seems like the promises of God aren't happening the way we thought they would. And there's this temptation to shake our fists in God's face. And sometimes the way that that shows up is being angry at the people in our lives that are standing in our way. Right? So most of you, I think, have probably had kids. How many times have you stood in their way and they were mad at you, but you were standing in their way for their good? Right? In that moment, they're raging at you because you're flesh and blood standing right in front of them. But in reality, they're mad at what you represent. They're mad at something bigger. And the struggle is when we're Israel, okay, when something scary is happening and we don't know what's going on, to be very careful about who we rage against in person, right? We can, we can have a bad day and kick the dog, figuratively speaking, right? The dog did nothing. It's just there. So what did Moses remind them of? Israel, bring your complaints to God. That's the key. That's what Job does. That's what all the great saints have done. It's not that Job didn't doubt God or thought God had broken his promise. I mean, Job says some pretty horrible things in a way. He's like, you've tricked me. You've brought me here. You're unfaithful. I wish I had a mediator that was strong as you because no one can stand against you. And I hate that reality. Life is terrible, right? That's where Job sits at some point. But what's the difference? Job shakes his fist at God's direction. He doesn't kick his wife who's not such a great person. He doesn't get mad at all these people, except when his friends tell him things that are untrue. He brings his complaint to God. That's what he does. And that's what the call is for us. When things go south and someone is standing in our way, do we have the the insight to look past the person to bring our complaint to God? To say, God, I trust you. I don't understand what you're doing. I'm kind of angry at what you're doing. Where are you? Right? To go to the person, not to Moses. But often in life, we're the Moses in the story, right? There are people who will come against you because you are flesh and blood. They can see you. They can't see what God is doing. And so they're mad at you. And I want you to notice what Moses does. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't attack them. He doesn't, he doesn't do anything except say two things to them. One, trust God and stand still. And sometimes that's all we have to say to the people that are upset with us because do we have the answer to their problem? Probably not. Moses didn't have an answer for them. He wasn't like, hold on, guys. God's about to part the Red Sea, and we're going to march through safely. He didn't know what was about to happen. But he had the insight to be like, I'm going to just calm you down as much as I can and ask you to be still and to wait, to be patient. And he, in essence, forgives them for attacking him. Right. So Moses leads them now to a place of saying, we can trust you. Because in all reality... There was another third way they could have gone, right? So here's our picture up here. Here's where they were in Egypt. This yellow line represents the path they took. So here's where they are by the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army's coming down. 
they ultimately want to be up here. So here's the question. Why didn't they just do that? It's not where God led them. It is by far the shortest route. Does anyone remember why God does not lead them there? The Philistines are up there. Chapter 13, chapter right before this, God says, I cannot take these people this direction because they will see the Philistines in the, in the armies of the Ammonites and the Moabites and all these ites that are up there. And they're, they're not equipped. They're not able to handle this. They will fail. And so one of the beautiful things we see in this text is God will not take us into places where we would fail. He knows that they are not equipped for this. So he takes them to the Red Sea, where again, what is their one responsibility? Put one foot in front of the other, and that's it. They don't have to pull out a sword. They don't have to battle a strategy. All they have to do is try to trust God. Now, they're going to struggle with that, but God's going to slowly prepare this nation to be able to go up here and actually have, a, have a, a fight. But they're not ready at this point, and God in his mercy spares them spiritual failure. But he does give them this, this command to stand still. To stand still. Um, who's my uh, Charles Spurgeon? Yeah, Charles Spurgeon um, says that the first thing you learn in the military, which I do not know, but I know some of you do. I keep seeing your picture up in Stanfordville. Yeah. You had a lot of hair. Very nice. <laughs> one of the things about the military is the first, one of the first things you learn is to stand still, right? Like to stand at attention and to just literally stand still in a certain format. Because to learn to stand still is important. But Charles Spurgeon said, whereas in the military, the first thing you learn and maybe the easiest thing you learn is to stand still. For the Christian, maybe the hardest thing and the last thing most of us learn is to stand still. We are so prone to activate. So prone to do something to solve the problems. So to, to literally be the Christian who sees a trial coming and learns to stand still and to pray is one of the, according to Charles Spurgeon, and I tend to agree, is one of the last things we learn to do because it's such a hard thing to do. So hard to just trust God and to stand still. But think about all the passages in scripture where that's exactly what we're told to do. Be still and know that I am God. Stand still and watch the deliverance that's about to happen to you. And so Moses encourages them, stand still. And they don't do that well. They are so wanting to do something, anything, but just wait. Because waiting is a very, very hard thing to do. And so their responsibility was to watch God work. And one of the amazing things is, God now is going to speak in chapter 14. He's going to say this to Moses in verse 16. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the heart of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will gain glory. He says, I don't even know how many times he said that so far. And I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all of his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen. And so that night, a strong wind blows the waters apart. And these people, all however many million of them, walk through a dark parted Red Sea at night, and not a single one of them fails to make it through. Now, one of the amazing things we see is the strength of the location of their faith, not the strength itself. I have a feeling there were some people in that group that were saying, we're all going to die. We're all going to die. These waters are going to cave in on us at any moment. We're all going to die. And I have a feeling there was probably some young clueless kid is like skipping along like this is the greatest day ever of course we're going to make it through and they're not worried at all but here's the amazing thing 
The strength of their faith is not what saved them. The location of their faith is what saved them. Their faith was in Jesus, in this case, or Christ. And we'll come back to that in just a second. Faith that God was going to deliver them. Now, some of them had very, very weak faith, terrified that they weren't going to make it. Some of them were probably boldly going through, couldn't wait to get to the other side. But the reality is God held the waters back for all of them until all of them made it through. And then he allows the waters to cave in. And one of the questions we always have, right, is where do we see Christ in this story? Because the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is about him. So it's kind of similar to this. Does anyone remember Where's Waldo? It was like a thing when I was a kid. I think it's still a thing now. Um, So all of you are actively looking. Waldo is the guy with the striped shirt, blue pants, and a hat. And just so you don't get distracted from what I'm trying to say, he's right here. Okay, so I'm showing you where Waldo is. Now, one of the amazing things about the Where's Waldo book is the whole book is about him, but if you're not actively looking for him, he's pretty hard to find. So here's the question we want to ask ourselves. Where is Waldo in this text? Where is Jesus in this text? Now, we're going to come to a few, but one of the things we see is this pillar of fire, this angel of the Lord that spares them. He goes between the army and the people. He stands as the buffer. And we're going to see more of him in just a minute, but he's in the background. But this whole parting of the water and keeping Egypt at bay is done through the angel of the Lord. And in many times, in my personal opinion, every single time the angel of the Lord shows up, it's Jesus pre-incarnate working on behalf of God. Because he speaks as if he is God and yet is different than the Father. It's one of those weird Old Testament mysteries. But that's one way we see him. Now the question I sometimes would wonder is why doesn't God work in a way where he empowers his people to supernaturally do things? Because sometimes he does, right? So for those of you who are DC fans looking around this room, I'm going to guess not many of you, but maybe. Maybe some of you are. This is Shazam. He's a character who has magical powers. And at the end of the movie, he gives like his magical powers to his siblings because he can just do that. So instead of him fighting a group of people by himself, he has this army behind him. If you're a Marvel people, which I'm assuming again you're not, Thor does the same thing. He like, gives the Thor power to all these little kids in one of the movies. Now, why doesn't God just supernaturally do that? Instead of having them powered through a Red Sea, why doesn't he just empower them to turn and fight like Samson? If you have an army of Samsons, Egypt's finished. So why doesn't he do that? And one of the ways that we see is because of these two songs. Okay, this is the song of Miriam. This is the next chapter. Chapter 15, she writes this song with Moses. They sing it. This is a little poem that Samson writes after he has killed a thousand men with a jawbone. Okay? What I want us to do now is we look at this text right here, this song of Miriam. I want you to count how many times she talks about her strength, how many times she talks about God's strength, okay? So in this case, how many times does she mention herself and her power? Zero times, right? The only time I shows up is what she's going to do in light of what God has done. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted, the horse and rider, he has hurled into the sea. So how many times is God mentioned in his power? twice in this one verse. Now flip over here to Samson, his little fun poem. With a donkey's jawbone, I have made donkeys of them. With a donkey's jawbone, I have killed a thousand men. How many times does he mention himself? Dob on him. Twice, he mentions himself with I. I have, I have. How many times does he mention God? Zero times. Because there's this strange reality that can set in, right? This strange reality that when God uses us, we sometimes forget 
it's him using us, not us doing our own thing. We forget where the power actually comes from, the source. Samson forgets. And you watch the nation of Israel. Almost any time a king is successful because he trusts in the Lord, he eventually makes a statement, makes a move, makes a choice built on what he thinks he can do, and everything goes downhill for him. The same exact thing is going to ultimately happen to Moses, right? A few years from this point, Moses is going to be so angry at the people that he's going to take his staff and strike a rock. And what does he say? Does anyone remember what he says? Must I now bring water from this rock for you rebellious, hard-hearted people? Like, hi not, Moses. You're going to bring water from this rock? Interesting. We're in the middle of a desert. That's a rock. You're going to magically bring water out of that. And God corrects him. But that tendency to assume our power when God is the one doing the work is a thing we have to fight against all the days of our lives, right? When we are totally helpless and we see God work like Miriam did, who gets the glory? The Lord does every single time. When sometimes he empowers us to make good, wise choices or financial invest well or raise a good kid or whatever, we have a tendency to take credit for that ourselves as if we did it, not him doing it through us. And so one of the challenges for us is when the times come and we have no strength and no power and no ability to choose, to not get mad about that, to be like, it's okay, as someone said earlier, it's okay that we're weak because in our weakness, his strength is manifested and who gets the glory? He does, not me, he does. And if you notice here in this case, and we'll, we'll come to this point, Pharaoh also gets what he wants in a way. Pharaoh wants life without God. Pharaoh, you remember when Pharaoh, what Pharaoh says to Moses at the very beginning of this story? Who is the Lord? Who is this the Lord you're talking about? I've never heard of him. By the end of this story, what are the Egyptians going to be saying? Well, let's read. Here's what happens. So God says, I'm going to harden their hearts. This is what they're going to do. They're going to chase after you. Now take a look at what happens in verse 24 of 14. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud, which is again where the angel of the Lord is manifested. The Lord's looking down from the same pillar of cloud. Man, something to think about. Looking down from this fire and cloud at the Egyptian army, and he threw it into confusion. He made the wheels of their chariots come off so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, and here's what they say, listen carefully. Let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. They now know this, the Lord. Now, what they've consistently asked for is life without him, right? Take this God away from us. Take this God away from us and these people go. But once you actually remove God, what do you actually wind up with? Destruction. So here's this idea of chaos, the chaos of sin, the chaos of whatever we fill in the blank. So if you want to single-handedly destroy integrity, introduce deception. If you want to make poverty 10 times worse, put a greedy person in charge of the resources. If you want to destroy intimacy, introduce lust and pornography. These things, sin in the world, brings chaos to our lives. And we've seen that, I mean, how many times have we seen that in our lives? You introduce sin into the world, it brings chaos. Israel, by God's grace, is going to be saved, not because they're so great, but because God wants to save them. But what does Egypt want? Life without God. They want to do things their way. And God ultimately is going to give them what they ask for. Chaos of their own choices and their own making. 
Now, it's a, it's a little bit difficult, and we're not going to get into it today, but there is this like passage about God hardening Pharaoh's heart. But just to kind of give us a little bit of context, the first five or six plagues, Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And God just builds on that seemingly. Pharaoh does not want to believe. No matter what the evidence says, he will not believe. And God, at the end of the day, is going to give Pharaoh what he asks for. And what he ends up ultimately asking for is destruction. And that's a strong warning for us. Because sometimes we, we, like Israel, want life without the Lord. But do we really want life without the Lord? Would we be willing to trade the difficulties that come with following him for all the chaos that comes with a life without him? And Israel is, in a sense, not going to be allowed to make that choice right now, which is good for them. But Pharaoh has given the same opportunities, and he decides to chase them down, and ultimately it leads to his own destruction. Just like sin always leads to our destruction if God does not intervene and, and stop us from ourselves. So now we have this comparison, right? This, this picture of who is Jesus behind this text. And I don't want to um, take too long dealing with this. But Moses is a picture of Christ here. He is their mediator. He is the one who gives them the instruction. He is the one who stands in their place before God, because he's going to stand before God all the time in the, in the book of Exodus on behalf of the people. And he's going to be the one to talk to God face-to-face as a friend and then turn around and talk to the people face-to-face. And Moses is a picture of the Lord that is to come. Right? He's going to lead them from a place of destruction through a difficult valley and into a place of life. And Moses shows us this. But here's the difference. We have a better Moses. Like we talked about, Moses ultimately is going to fail. He is going to take responsibility for things that are not his, and he's going to take credit for things that are not his. And God is going to say, Moses, you don't get to enter the promised land because of your sin. And now we have the, the reversal. We have Jesus, who is sinless. And on one level, what does God tell him? Jesus Because you are sinless, you cannot enter the promised land in order for your people to take your righteousness and enter the promised land with you. So Jesus is going to be cut off, just like Moses, except not for sin. His perfection and the perfect life is going to be the means by which we pass through the Red Sea of Death in order to make it to the promised land, which is what we've been longing for our whole lives. So there is this fundamental difference. Moses leads them, but is a failure. Jesus leads us, but is perfect. And he's the one who enables us to travel this. So in John 5, he's going to say, whoever hears these words of mine and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. Quite possibly in Jesus's mind, he's thinking of this text of Israel passing from death into life through the Red Sea into life. Because the, the oceans in their day always represented chaos and destruction. They kind of thought of it as a, as a thinning between the physical realm and the spiritual realm, which is why when God builds his palace on waters or Jesus walks on water, he's showing complete control over the chaos of life, that even the things that terrify us, not scary to him. And this is the God that Israel was learning to serve and was learning to trust. And so we follow a better Moses. We follow Jesus. But we are also to speak with the accent of heaven. Right, so coming back to my accent theme, Israel was supposed to have an accent in the world around them. They were supposed to sound different than all the nations. And I'm just going to read you a couple different texts. Uh, this first one is out of Exodus 22, a couple chapters from here, and then I'm going to read you one out of Deuteronomy. I want you to notice 
what God wanted Israel to never forget in order for them to interact with people who are going to be poorer, weaker, and have less connections than they would have. All right, so here's a couple of the texts that they're told. Exodus 14, or sorry, 22. You shall not oppress the aliens in your, in your midst. You know the heart of the aliens, for you were once one. And then in Deuteronomy, he says this um, to the people. Uh, he says, sorry, uh, to treat the strangers and transients fairly, to love them, and to treat them as one of their own. To treat transient strangers in your midst as one of your own. And again, why? Because they're transient and strangers, and when they were in their worst place, who came to their aid? The Lord came to their aid. And now Israel will have a place of power, and they're to never forget their homelessness. Now, here's a challenge for each of us. We live in a very stable environment and country. Now, granted, there's little waves and things that we worry about, but if you look around the world and the history of the world, we're pretty secure. And sometimes that security can actually keep us from seeing the needs of other people because we forget what is it like to be homeless. And most of us in here do not know that. We don't know that experience. But guess what's true? Every single one of us in here was spiritually homeless. We had no place to call our own. If it wasn't for God choosing to adopt us and bring us into his kingdom, we'd still be kicking around in the world trying to figure out what the meaning of life was. But he brought us into his family. And there's always going to be people with less power than us in our lives. And Israel was commanded to speak with the accent of heaven, to operate and never to forget who they once were. So that when they have houses and vineyards and fields and all these great things that God's going to give them, they would not think that it was theirs, that they earned it, and to not forget what they're supposed to do with those resources, to give them out to people who have less power than them, to speak with the accent of heaven. Now, some people love accents. Who are my people who like to hear other accents in the world? A couple of us, except when you're calling for help about your computer, right? Then you don't, <laughs> then you don't want an accent. But accents stand out, and they tell you something about where that person is from. Now, I can't necessarily always tell the difference between an Irish and a Scottish accent or an Australian and a British, but I know they're not from here, right? You can tell. Now, the challenge is for us as Christians. Are we living our lives in such a way that we have an accent? People are hearing the accent of heaven through us to know we're not from, a, from around here, right? So many people, when they move into a new, a new land, want to abandon their accent. They want to blend into the place that they're at. And the temptation for Christians is the same, for us to forget and to like let go of the things that truly make us distinct, to truly make us different. But the only way a person is going to know something different about you is based on your accent. And some people will not like your accent. They'll be mad at you. They're like, why do you speak that way? But other people will be intrigued by your accent and may ask questions and provide an opportunity for you to talk about the home that you really are from the home that they can be a part of as well. And that's the beauty of what God's calling us to do. Now, I don't think we normally do this, but I want to do this if you're willing, is to, to play one more closing song. Because as Israel marched through the Red Sea and they got to the other side, what is the first thing they do? They sing. Chapter 15 is the song of Moses and Miriam, of which I took one of the texts we just read a little bit. They sang because there's power in worship. There's power in singing of what Christ has done for us. 
There's power in reminding ourselves of these things. And Miriam's song gets duplicated again and again and again. The Exodus story is sung about by every single Israelite person throughout their entire history. Through the Psalms, through the prophets, it just keeps going. Because what Israel forgot in the moment is what God wants them to remember forever. You were once a slave nation, and by God's power, you are now free. You and I were once slaves to sin, and by God's power, we are now free. And one of the ways we keep that memory alive in our own hearts is to sing. So let me close in prayer. And if Wayne is willing or however you guys want to do it, you know, you didn't plan it, I would love to stand and sing or sit and sing um, one closing song of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we want to thank you so much for your power in our lives. We thank you, Lord, that you did not leave us where we were, that you brought us out of slavery, brought us out of ourselves, and showed us a better way. And not only showed us a better way, gave us the power to walk a better way with your strength. So Lord, help us, Lord, to look for opportunities in our world around us for those who are weak and need help, um, that we would not be afraid to give of ourselves, to sacrifice for the sake of others. And when we do that, Lord, may our accent be clearly heard by those who are looking for something different than what they've always known. We pray these things in your name. Amen.